KPFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, we'll revisit the January 6th insurrection. If you were planning a future coup, what could you learn from the failure of Trump's efforts on January 6th? Fintan O'Toole says it would need, first of all, a better story, not attacking Congress, but defending democracy. Fintan O'Toole teaches at Princeton, and he's the author most recently of We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland. Also later in the show, who'd want to see a movie about Harvey Weinstein? But the film She Said, about the two New York Times reporters who broke the Harvey Weinstein story, is not really about Harvey. It's about the system that protected him. And it's really good. Katha Pala thought so too. She will comment later in the hour. But first, today's political update. For that, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Well, we've heard a lot about the new rules adopted by the Republicans in the House of Representatives, but there's at least one I knew nothing about that you highlighted. It's called the Holman Rule, and it empowers Congress to add to appropriations bills amendments to fire particular federal employees or also to demote them, to reassign them, or to cut their pay. Who exactly do they have in mind here? What is this about? Well, uh, this is an extension of their talking point that D.C. is a swamp and that, you know, innumerable civil servants are more more loyal to the swamp, which actually means probably more loyal to uh, the quest, uh, the empirical quest for facts than the Republicans feel comfortable about. So this rule is named after the legislator who first introduced it in the 1870s Whoa. during sort of the contest between advocates of continuing party patronage and going to uh, civil service in the federal workforce, it has almost never been uh, invoked, uh, brought back until the Republicans took control of the House uh, after the 2016 election. So it was there for two years then. And now that it's the House is back in control of the Republicans, they have uh, passed this rule now. Now, obviously, you need majorities in both houses to put this rule into into law, into play, uh, and that's not going to happen. But it 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 is in keeping with the Republican strategy of of, of saying that D.C. is corrupt and uh, worthy of investigation. Uh, which they plan to do. Now, isn't it also true that Donald Trump first became famous for the phrase, you're fired? Absolutely. That was on The Apprentice. And this seems to be a through line from Trump, not just to the Republican Congress, which is now adopting uh, this motto, but also to Trump's so far sort of leading opponent in the 2024 Republican presidential primaries, Ron DeSantis, who has uh, fired the the DA of uh, Hillsborough County, uh, that's Tampa, who is not an employee of state government. He was elected by the voters of Hillsborough County, who has done uh, pretty much de facto, at least the same on various school boards. Uh, The Tampa DA said he wouldn't enforce 
abortion restrictions and the school board uh, members who then who were there at DeSantis's bidding have fired several school district superintendents because they want to, you know, have their districts teach American history as it actually happened. So firing seems to have become, uh, you know, a, a common strategy and a common obsession for the Republicans. And I, I think given that the party is really devoted more to sort of sticking it to the libs, owning the libs, than it is to anything else. Nothing exemplifies that than than a firing, and it it it, presi- it it provides a kind of Schadenfreude, a kind of happiness at someone else's misery to a Republican base, which has been conditioned to want to have misery inflicted uh, up, upon liberals and others they deem uh, <laughs> worthy of receiving pain. Well, your pretty much the only person I know who actually watched Kevin McCarthy's first speech as Speaker of the House. It was at the middle of the night, for one thing. It was 1 under- a.m. in uh, <clears throat> Eastern time. What time was that? 1 a.m. 1 a.m. Well, we salute That's pretty you. much when it started. I didn't, <laughs> it didn't finish at 1 a.m. It started at 1 a.m. Okay. Well, I understand that, among other things, he said that Republicans now that they're in power in the House, will bring back, quote, the hundreds of thousands of jobs that went to China, close quote. I wonder if you have any comment on this. Yeah, well, this, this kind of uh, neglects to mention, he kind of neglected to mention, that when the uh, CHIPS Act came before the House, uh, which brings back the semiconductor industry to the United States, uh, whereas we have been dependent on China for our chips, uh, silicon chips, what have you, most Republicans actually voted against that. <laughs> and since I have a long memory, uh, <laughs> and sometimes I have little else, but I do have a long memory, uh, I remember that in 2000, uh, 2001, when the bill establishing permanent normal trade relations with China came before the House, it had overwhelming Republican support, even though two out of three Democrats in the House voted against it. That was the bill that essentially said to American corporations, go thou to China for cheap labor. Uh, and American corporations did. That's what really finally decimated uh, the Midwestern industrial belt. So the Republicans saying they want to bring back jobs from China Uh, It's a little too little, it's a little too late, and it's a little too ahistorical in terms of what they've supported up to now. Now it's time for news of the class struggle on campus, regular feature of this broadcast. This week, we have big news from Yale, the most recent school where unionization of teaching assistants is taking giant strides. After a 30-year struggle... Yale announced it would recognize Unite Here as the bargaining agent for TAs and other grad student employees. The vote supervised by the NLRB was 1,860 in favor of unionization and 179 against. I read this was the second largest NLRB petition in the nation in in 2022. So this is big news, not just for higher education, not just for private universities, but for the whole labor scene. Indeed, and it's reflective of uh, an entire generation of millennials and Gen Zers, two generations actually, 
who believe that workers should have, uh, you know, a say in the conditions of their work. I should add that uh, Unite Here, including back when it was simply here, the hotel and restaurant union, uh, has a history at Yale going back more than 40 years when a, an, an undergraduate named John Wilhelm went to, uh, was an undergraduate there. John was shortly thereafter hired by the hotel union and began uh, building support for organizing the blue collar uh, workers at, uh, at Yale and uh, the hospital workers at Yale Medical Hospital and School. I remember I wrote a piece for the prospect about 10 years ago when the union had so much clout in New Haven that its members dominated the New Haven City Council. So the last chip to fall, ironically, was the grad students themselves. (laughs) Now, Unite Here, the hotel union, has been every, every year some significant number of Yale uh, graduates uh, go to work for Unite Here as researchers or, or something in that capacity. Yale has been, as it were, almost a hiring hall <laughs> for this our leading union in what's called the hospitality sector in hotels, the strategists, the researchers, what have you. So it's a, it's a long history. And finally, uh, the union, as it were, closest to home at Yale is now extant among uh, the grad student employees, and that's uh, local of Unite Here. So Unite Here is representing Yale grad students. Uh, Of course, we've talked many times about how it's the United Auto Workers who are representing the University of California grad students. Do you think it makes any difference to the grad students? And what does it mean for each of these unions? It probably doesn't make a a difference for the grad students. Uh, They have shown a willingness to unionize under essentially, whichever union is will make an effort uh, to, to help them unionize and then help them bargain uh, with management. You know, I mean, among public universities like UC, which have in blue states have been unionizable uh, due to state law for a very long time, a host of unions have sort of uh, uh, swept in you know, saying that, well, we can, we can represent you, chiefly because they can't uh, organize anyone in the private sector. Mm. Now, the UAW had, it's really had the first breakthroughs in organizing private universities with uh, NYU and Columbia, and, and this required uh, a Democratic majority on the National Labor Relations Board to rule that private universities were really employers and TAs were really employees. But once that happened, the UAW came in and now Unite Here is in. And I don't doubt somewhere in the country, private college or university has an organizing campaign going on from either one of those unions or a a different union. There there are relatively few arenas in which unions can grow. University campuses are one of those few arenas. And it's more difficult, of course, as we've often said, for private universities. But in 2022, graduate students won union elections at several big private universities, MIT, Boston University, Fordham, Clark. You already mentioned Harvard, Columbia, I guess Tufts and Georgetown already have contracts that have been won. And the Elections that are coming up that I hope we'll be talking about later this year are at Johns Hopkins, the University of Chicago, and Northwestern. So it's not going to stop soon. 
The University of Chicago would be just beautiful because that, of course, is a campus identified with the more laissez-faire than thou economics of uh, of Milton Friedman. So that would be, I think, a fitting burial for uh, Friedmanite ideology. One, one footnote to the Yale uh, situation. Old timers will remember going back to the uh, 70s and 80s, GESO, G-E-S-O, the Graduate Employees Student Organization. They're the ones that were the original campaigners for, for a TA union. And I understand, I am told by a former Yale graduate and Unite Here employee, that the current president of Yale, Peter Salovi, was a member of GESO when he was a grad student. Boy, and his career was obviously not deterred by his uh, involvement in the union. Well, I, I think we, we are obliged at this point to sing a chorus of Bula Bula, but, you know, in deference to our, <laughs> our listeners, let's not. Please. Of course, grad student teaching assistants aren't the only workers engaged in contract negotiations gearing up for strikes uh, right now. The big one is the UPS drivers, represented by the Teamsters, whose contract expires on August 1st, but who are involved in negotiations and strike preparations right now. The last time the Teamsters went on strike against UPS, I read, was in 1997, 26 years ago. That one was the largest strike in the country in the previous 20 years. 185,000 workers stayed out for 15 days and then declared victory. And today, according to an excellent article in The New Yorker, UPS drivers earn middle-class pay, good health care benefits, and a pension. They start at $21 an hour. A driver with four years on the job can make $42 an hour. The average UPS driver makes $95,000 a year, and yet 350,000 UPS employees are preparing to go on strike on August 1st. What's the problem? Well, they're they're kind of monitored almost in an Orwellian fashion by by management. I should add that a big chunk of that three hundred thousand plus membership isn't drivers; it's warehouse workers. Yeah, I understand that only forty percent of the Teamsters representing UPS are drivers. The rest, as you say, are the warehouse workers, and most of them, I think, most of them are part time. The great disaster for union members at UPS was in 2018 when James Hoffa was president. They agreed to a two-tier system, and I understand 55% of UPS workers voted to reject that contract, but somehow the Teamster leaders were able to impose it on their members nevertheless, and it's created a legacy of bitterness that has led to a revolution inside the Teamsters. Yeah, the, the uh, Ancien regime uh, had a rule that uh, a contract required a 60% vote to reject uh, a contract. Uh, so uh, even though a 55% voted against it, uh, the leadership accepted it. This was one of the uh, platform planks that the insurgent slate headed by now Teamster President Sean O'Brien ran on to get rid of this for Schlugener rule. And they prevailed in the uh, Teamster convention last summer because the Hoffa people were really almost too embarrassed and too beleaguered to defend it. They, they succeeded in getting it expunged. So now it takes 
amazingly enough, a simple majority uh, uh, to do things like ratify strikes and ratify uh, contracts. Would that the United States Senate uh, had the common sense of that body of Teamsters. But anyway, this led to the insurgent slate sweeping in with a real mandate um, and headed by two leaders, Sean O'Brien and Fred Zuckerman, who have previously been involved in the international negotiations with UPS and long ago were either were bounced from that because they didn't like this 60% rule and didn't like the two-tier contract. So they now head the union as respectively president and secretary treasurer. And it's pretty clear uh, what their priorities are going into bargaining. And I understand the UPS contract with the Teamsters is the largest private sector collective bargaining agreement in North America. UPS is like like an oasis of unionism in in the desert of of anti-union employment in the United States, including their their main uh, the main alternatives to shipping uh, FedEx and Amazon, uh, which are resolutely non-union. Yes, FedEx has always uh, proclaimed that its drivers are independent contractors who can make their own decisions, although it's FedEx who tells them what their routes are, that helps them pay for their trucks. And you never see a FedEx driver on a weekend taking a FedEx truck uh, to schlep his kids, say, to a Little League game. That they don't do, <laughs> even though they're supposedly independent contractors. And Amazon has a, uh, a, a, a sort of a two-tier strategy. Uh, both tiers are bad. Uh, its drivers, again, like FedEx, tend to be independent contractors and its warehouse workers burn out uh, within a year. So they're unlikely to unionize because you don't uh, wage a major battle to join a union if you can't stand working at Amazon for more than six months. So yes, uh, it's greatly to the Teamsters and to UPS's credit that it's a thriving company, even though it has what is supposedly the burden of treating its workers decently because of the Teamsters union contract. And I think if you look at the Teamsters long uh, term strategy to go after Amazon, winning a really good contract for their warehouse workers would be sort of their best possible calling card to to Amazon workers. So I, I think we need to view the UPS situation as a, a two-step. The, the first is to secure a really good contract for uh, the drivers and warehouse workers. The second is to roll that on to uh, take on the, the, the real behemoth, uh, which is Amazon. And <clears throat> Sean O'Brien has a memorable uh, quote. He says, we're going to take the new UPS contract. We're going to, we're do, we're going to show Amazon workers what you get when you join the greatest organization in the world, close quote. Well, you know, even under old Manhoffa, not the son, under old Manhoffa, the Teamsters were brilliant at organizing and it didn't have anything to do with, uh, with thugs most of the time. It was because they just had smarter strategies uh, that old Manhoffa developed. Hoffa's uh, innovations were really notable. This, this would uh, roll that on. It would... Uh, it's seldom been the case that if the Teamsters get what they are asking for in the contract, uh, the success at one company can break down the walls of uh, anti-union resistance at another. We'll see if that works. 
And if our listeners want to know more about uh, UPS and the Teamsters, there's a terrific article in the New Yorker this week by Jennifer Gonerman. Last topic, California politics. Katie Porter announced she will run for Senate in the 2024 Democratic primary. This is assuming Dianne Feinstein agrees to retire. Wouldn't Katie Porter be great as a senator? She would. Uh, That said, there are a number of other Democrats planning to run uh, who you think might also be great. Uh, Ro Khanna uh, is is considering running and the longtime uh, Congress member from Oakland, uh, Barbara Lee, is also considering running. These are three stalwarts, although different generations of, uh, you know, the, the solid progressives in the congressional delegation. Uh, and there's one, you know, sort of a more establishment figure, Adam Schiff of Pasadena, who's also thinking of running. So, uh, I mean, the, the, if, if anything would further cement California's uh, reputation as a lefty state, certainly a, a Senate primary featuring, featuring all of the above would do that. Although I have to say, uh, if, if the three of those progressives run and Adam Schiff runs, which I'm certain he will, that probably would help Adam Schiff because uh, they would be splitting votes and he wouldn't. One final thing, Donald Trump. One of the last document uh, drops by the January 6th committee included more information from Jared Kushner's uh, testimony with the committee. Among other things, he told the committee that two days after the mainstream media declared Biden the win- the winner, Trump told Kushner to trademark the phrase rigged election. Trademarking means you can um, require people to pay you for using the phrase. If you have any thoughts. Well, uh, Trump has a a sharp eye for the quick buck. Uh, Even if it's uh, preposterous, that has never deterred him. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always a pleasure to talk to you on the show. Likewise, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. It's been two years since the January 6th insurrection attempt, and the House Committee investigating those events has published its final report, writing about how to protect democracy in the future. But there's another way to look at those events, suggested in the New York Review by Fintan O'Toole. If you were planning a future coup, What could you learn from the failure of this one? Fintan O'Toole is a columnist for the Irish Times and the Leonard L. Milberg Professor of Irish Letters at Princeton. His most recent book is We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland. It was named one of the 10 best books of 2022 by the New York Times, The Atlantic, one of the best books of the year by The Washington Post, The New Yorker, lots of other places. We reached him today in Dublin, Fintan O'Toole, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, John. It's lovely to be with you. Well, you say the biggest failure of the January 6th coup attempt was that they didn't have their story straight. The story they had, of course, involved summoning a violent mob to Washington to invade the Capitol and 
forcibly stop Congress from certifying the election of Joe Biden, what they wanted to happen next remains a little murky. It seemed like maybe if they could create enough chaos, maybe Trump would just remain president, or maybe the Supreme Court would declare him the winner, or maybe they'd hang Mike Pence. Uh, no one seemed to be really sure about the plan, or even if there was one, why didn't they have their story straight? It's a great question, John. I think we have to start with, with Trump himself, of course, and his personality. What we know about Trump is that he regarded any attempt to manage him or you know, to put a plan in place as a, an affront to his freedom as the you know, the special one whose instincts would be the things that would govern what should happen. This is really built into the sort of narcissistic authoritarianism uh, that he exemplified, right? Which is that that actually, you know, somebody giving you a plan is is putting forward the idea in a way that they can control what it is you're going to do. And, and we know that Trump was very deeply resistant to that from what happened with the election that he actually won. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, this is a guy who who refused to plan the transition to his actual presidency in 2016, 2017. Chris Christie, couldn't have to a nicer guy, uh, was <laughs> head of his of Trump's transition team. Put a huge amount of work into, you know, here's all the hundreds of things we have to do to take over. Here's what we're going to do in the first hundred days, all that stuff, you know. And, and Christie describes in his self-pitying memoir, um, arriving at Trump Tower, you know, with his vast amounts of paper uh, and ring binders, and literally dumped. I mean, literally put in the dumpster, you know, <laughs> because Trump will not be bound by a plan. And so, I suppose coup one hundred and one is like have a plan, right? You know, <laughs> have a sense of the sequence of events. And Trump wasn't willing to do that. I think there's a second reason why he wasn't willing to do it, which, which is, of course, that he operates as a mafia boss, and a mafia boss assumes that people that he's put in place underneath him are his minions and will simply do what he tells them. And if they don't, he can lean on them. You know? And that's, of course, what he tried to do. So, so uh, Trump, in a way, wasted a lot of time by, by leaning on election officials, uh, by leaning on, on judges. I mean, we, we, we know that there were certainly discussions about, you know, when, when, when the Supreme Court went against him, Trump, Trump's immediate response was to say we should have leaned on them more, you know. <laughs> I, I, so that that mentality, you know, that sort of thuggish mentality, which is which is we, we know is very much part of his makeup. I think also, in a way, made him misunderstand the transactional nature of power uh, in what is still, after all, something of a democracy, right? You know that, uh, and particularly with the courts, was it in the interests of a Supreme Court, which had just acquired? A supermajority that would allow it to, you know, fulfill the fantasy of the right for so many years, and overturn Roe versus Wade, was it in their interests to take the huge risk involved in an obviously very badly planned coup? No, it wasn't, and and Trump never got that. And I think the third reason, and this is maybe the most complex one, but it, it is that Trump was brilliant at a certain kind of messaging around violence. If you go back and you look at the primary campaign and then the uh, the, electric, the the presidential election campaign in 2016, he calibrated over time how, how would you urge people to commit acts of violence? You know? 
So first time he does it, when there's a protester, he basically tells people to beat them up, realizes that's not a very good idea, you know, uh, and, and then he develops a sort of joke structure, I describe it in, in, in the essay, really, you know, which is don't beat up that guy, but if you did, he would deserve it. <laughs> or that guy deserves beaten up, but don't do it. You know, the, the sort of uh-huh. double um, message. Yeah, And it's all about plausible deniability. And it's all about sort of assuming that your audience knows what you mean, but you don't want to be caught saying it. And this is one of his strengths, right? So this is definitely something that he uh, has been able to mobilize. And of course, it, it reaches its grotesque crescendo with Charlottesville, you know, good people on both sides, all that stuff. But it's not very good when you come to actually implementing violence, you know, on a large scale. You have to tell people what it is you want them to do, and you have to tell them what happens after they do it. I mean, in your introduction, John, you said this exactly, you know, and I, I think you're absolutely right, but it's like, which is, is what happens next, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, you you hang my pants, you hang Nancy Pelosi, who, who knows what, but what then, <laughs> you know? And, and it seems very clear to me that Trump had absolutely no idea. So I, I read January 6th, in a sense, as an outburst of rage at the failure of the coup rather than the coup itself. And you say that a successful coup would have had a very different story, not disruption and violence. What would a better story have been? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I mean, there, there are a lot of very strange characters, of course, coming out of the woodwork around Trump at, at this time, urging him to do different kinds of things. You know, Mike Flynn coming back, Sidney Powell. Some of them are completely absurd figures. One of the people who was involved in this kind of critical meeting that took six hours in the White House where they were kind of urging Trump to seize the um, the ballots in the most contested states uh, is a guy called Patrick Byrne. And 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 Byrne actually put forward what, what was quite an intelligent plan or at least idea, right? And what, what Byrne was saying is, no, 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 you know, you cannot be, be being seen to subvert the election. That's not what we're doing. The election has been stolen through foreign interference. And so what we are going to do is create a drama, public drama, in which we are the ones who are insisting on the votes being counted. So you go in, you seize the paper ballots in whatever places you want, and you conduct, I mean, Bernard was saying, you know, you conduct this live on TV, right? So you're, you're counting the ballots. One, one of the strange things is like that Trump... Trump was always going to do this, right? So, so he had loads of time, and the people around him had loads of time to plan it. I mean, there's not a single person I think who ever expected him to concede defeat when he lost. So, he, you know, he 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 should have had a plan, and we sort of know historically um, what works in these in these circumstances. I mean, look to the invasion of Iraq, for example. Right? You you produce a lot of documentation. You produce a lot of apparently credible looking charts and figures and whatever, like a 500-page pre-prepared document, which shows how this terrible interference in our election took place. And remember, because it's all fiction, I mean, you can you can make it up any way you like, you know? <laughs> but you can just imagine how, if, if you prepared that, if you if you got it out to Fox News, if you got, you know, the, the, the right-wing media, maybe even some of the centrist media, you know, um, because we know that happens with with the Iraq stuff, you know, which is create a narrative, right? That there, there's a huge problem here uh, that we've had we've had this foreign interference, and we're going to fix it. Trump did have this theme for a very long time: the idea that our system is rigged. 
We recently learned that he told Jared Kushner to trademark the phrase rigged election. So a uh, very Trumpian thing to do. But you're, you're, you're arguing that, well, rigged election isn't quite right. It, should, it would be better to make it defending democracy. Absolutely. So, so, so what the story would be is, here's all this evidence. Now, you have to get your story straight, first of all, about who is interfering. One of the idiocies of the coup attempt was that they couldn't make up their minds, right? It was, you know, they were digging up Cesar Chavez one minute, and it was the Chinese Communist Party the next minute, and it was, you know, God knows. I mean, well, there was the Italian. My favorite was the Italian satellite. (laughs) What was uh, it? CIA. You know, so so the idiocy was, you know, the sort of rag bag, which which never cohered into a a halfway coherent story. If I could just interrupt here, you have a wonderful phrase to describe the large variety of arguments they had. You said their execution of this plan was, quote, like a dog chasing a flock of pigeons. (laughs) Yeah, that's what- Thank you for that. (laughs) You you know, when you see that, and and of course the dog can never focus on one pigeon because it it, it sort of, its eyes keep being drawn to (laughs) other ones, you know? and. Uh, th- so that's, you know, very basic sort of drama theory or whatever narrative theory would just tell you, you know, you, you, you have to have a story which is internally consistent and they didn't have it. But to go back to the thing of what would you do differently? I think you, you certainly could have a coherent story, you know, particularly since it's fictional, particularly since you have a committed right wing media, which would amplify this very quickly. And it wouldn't need to hold together that long, right? It, it just needs to get you to the point where you're doing a physical recount of votes live on TV, right? With 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 military personnel, with you know, with the whole the the, the movie really kind of playing out there. You know, exactly. The story is we are defending democracy. What is wrong with counting votes? Now they've already decided how many votes they need to get. Right. And exactly what the logistics would be of you know finding these votes is is not clear. But that's certainly one of the questions I think you would you would think about if you were if you were planning this the next time. One of the most memorable uh, stories we learned from the January 6th committee was the scene where Trump throws his lunch at the wall, leaving ketchup dripping down the wall. That was December 1st. What had provoked that? That really was provoked by the, the the final failure of his of his legal campaign, right? So so it it, it does tell you how sure he was that his judges, as he would have seen them, with not entirely without reason, uh, <laughs> were going to you know do him a solid. They were, they were going to do what the transaction was. I mean, he he gave them these. He seats for life on the Supreme Court, and surely the other thing they owed him was to rig the election for him, you know, or to 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 declare the election, to to order recounts, whatever, you know, and and so that that sort of rage, I think, tells you how how deep was his idea, this mafia don idea, really, that that you know he could have his will enforced through proxies in the legal system. The tweet where he called on his followers to come to Washington uh, for an event that would be, quote, really wild. He sent that tweet in the middle of the night. And you say we need to focus on what were the events, what happened that night that led him to conclude he had to summon the mob rather than the other kind of more plausible, more reasonable ideas. What, What was going on before he sent his middle of the night tweet? 
So, so that follows on this extraordinary six-hour rolling meeting in uh, different parts of the White House, in the in the Oval Office, and then in the private quarters, which comes about because um, Sidney Powell and Mike Flynn and Byrne blagged their way into the White House. I mean, it's you know, it's 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 it. You couldn't make it up to you know use the cliche, but you know, it, it really is. They blag their way in. They've no appointment to see Trump. They but they managed to get him. You know, and and then Trump's. More organized um, people like Mike Meadows come in to try to stop them talking to him. And there's there's almost fisticuffs. Uh, it's this kind of bizarre event. But that's the meeting at which the the intruders, as it were, Flynn and, and Byrne and Powell are putting forward this plan right now. You know, what are we going to do now? What we're going to do now is you're going to declare foreign interference. You're going to evoke an executive order made by Obama that says in the case of foreign interference in the elections, the, the president has the right to, to, to take action. And you're going to appoint Sidney Powell as a sort of prosecu- special prosecutor to, to get get the people who are doing this. And you're going to appoint Flynn. Well, Burns' term for it is as field marshal, right? Now, this is funny. And then you're going to send in the, you know, under Flynn, you're going to send in the, the army uh, or the National Guard, it's not quite clear, you know, exactly who's going to do this, but they're going to seize the paper ballots in the most contested uh, areas. So this goes on and on, and, and Trump listens to them and seems to have been convinced by them because he did say at that meeting that he was appointing Sidney Powell as special prosecutor. He, he seems at some point to have concluded this was his last shot. I guess, because you see, we don't have Trump's account of this, right? But, you know, so what's going on in his head? But I would guess that after all the excitement of that, he's got to by by Meadows and by Giuliani, who just said, look, this is nuts, you can't do it. And I think at that stage, he realizes that there's only one thing left to do, which is which is violence, calling his people. And that's what he does in 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 the early hours of the morning. You know, he he issues that infamous tweet. But I think it tells us that January 6th is. I wouldn't quite say an afterthought, but it, but it is a sort of last resort. You know, it's 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 a, it's a roll of the dice after the game in a, in, a, in effect is really over, because I think what Trump probably realizes is that it's too late to put in put in place the plan he should have put put in place. I mean, the, the plan. I mean, should have. I mean, if you were if you were doing a serious coup with a real chance of of success. Another one of your most fascinating arguments is that it was a big mistake to say from the beginning that he knew the election was going to be rigged and he would never concede. What he should have said was, if he lost fair and square, of course he'd concede, but he had to confirm that that's what the vote result actually was. Exactly, exactly. So, and, and this was Byrne's argument. I think Byrne is an interesting figure in this again, you know, because Byrne says, look, no, no, you know, the, the, the story you're putting forward is that if the if there's a hand recount in these areas and it shows that indeed you lost, so Trump would announce that he would say, "If I lost fair and square, I am I'm, I'm I'm going peacefully. I'm going to accept that Joe Biden won. You know, I will accept the result of the election." But of course, Trump had precluded that by by basically saying he was never going to accept the results of the election. Uh, and again, a a sophisticated plotter would always have presented him or herself as you know, the defender of democracy, the person who, of course, you know, just wants to do right by the American people and and wants to make sure that what they have chosen is what happens. There's one kind of significant footnote to the aftermath of the failed insurrection, which was that Congress returned to finish its work 
late the night of January 6th, and 147 Republican members of Congress voted for what we call the fake electors scheme. Do you consider that to have been a better story about defending democracy? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's too late, right? So so it 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 should have been done before the electoral college met, right? So that's that's the point at which you you do this interference. But it does show, and, and this is why I think it's not just speculative, you know, to think about what what might have happened and what might happen again. It does show that there is a there was a huge nexus within the Republican Party which was prepared to go along with the coup. I mean, the fake electors might be slightly more sophisticated looking than, you know, than 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 guys with horns in their heads <laughs> uh, through, through 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 the capital. But it, it 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 has exactly the same effect, right? Which is which is which is to overturn the result of the election. And indeed, it's actually much more much more productive, right? So you 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 have a mechanism through which Trump is declared to be president, which the the Proud Boys didn't have, right? And so he got this support even after everything had happened. You know, I, I mean, I don't know how you feel about John, but you know, it, it always. I understand the the ideological madness of these people. I understand how far right they've gone. Can't understand the personal thing. You know, <laughs> these people are out to kill you. <laughs> you know? They weren't going to stop at Mike Pence. You know, like the, the, the like the the sheer terror that was involved on that day. It's this unleashing of this violence on anybody who's going to get in their way. And yet, within hours, as you say, I mean, they they go back and they effectively endorse this coup. I mean, and, and then, of course, we'll, we'll refuse to impeach Trump for his, for his role. Fintan O'Toole, his article about January 6th, titled Dress Rehearsal, appeared in the New York Review. Fintan, thanks for talking with us today. Real pleasure, Jeff. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Who'd want to see a movie about Harvey Weinstein? That's what I thought when I heard that the film She Said about the two New York Times reporters who in 2017 broke the Harvey Weinstein story, that that film had just started streaming this week. But it turns out the film is not really about Harvey. It's more about the system that protected him. And it's really good. For comment, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. Her work has also appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. Her most recent book is Pro, Reclaiming Abortion Rights. We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. It's nice to hear your voice. Well, she said started out as a book that won a Pulitzer Prize, I was prepared to be bored by the movie because don't we already know everything we need to know about Harvey Weinstein in that bathrobe at the Peninsula Hotel? But on screen, as we follow the reporters Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor, played by Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan, I found the movie fascinating and moving. What did you think? I thought it was completely gripping. Um, I think we make too much about, uh, oh, we already know this story. I mean, most stories you know. You uh, you know the story of Hamlet. Everyone dies. <laughs> yes, yes. But you still go. 
There was a lot of new information in there for me because I didn't follow every twist and turn of the story and I didn't read the book either. So uh, the the way they got the story was was fresh material to me. And I think for a lot of people who went to see it. A lot of people knew about Harvey's crimes, but nobody would talk on the record, especially the women who he had made really famous like Gwyneth Paltrow. So what are our intrepid reporters supposed to do at that point? They decide to focus instead on the employees, the women who work for Harvey at Miramax, but none of them will talk either. The real drama of the film is how they uncover this vast network of enablers who not only help Harvey commit his crimes, but even more important, help him keep them hidden with big cash settlements and non-disclosure agreements, NDAs. So the problem becomes how to write about the NDAs, how to disclose the non-disclosure agreements, and how to get the women who signed them to agree to violate them. Yes, and that's very gripping. It's a lot of journalistic and legal maneuvering. But I love the way each of these women is portrayed so differently. You know, some of them have been driven out of the film business. Some of them have been really quite traumatized for a long period of time. One of them, her husband doesn't even know because she was just so ashamed and wanting to put the whole thing behind her. And I thought that was really interesting. It was a very sympathetic portrait of these women that also seem true, very true to life. The stories of the, the victims and how and why each decided to talk is really the heart of, of the movie. And I think it's something that works better on screen. It's something you can do better in a movie than in a book or, or a newspaper uh, article. And that's one of the reasons to see the film. Yes, it was quite exciting. And a film can do that in a way that a book cannot. Um, and I, there were a couple of things I want to mention that I liked very much. Um, one of them was that often in movies about women in women in journalism, there's a suggestion that she uses her sexual wiles to get the story. Um, there's none of that here. There's no flirtation between her and between the two women and anybody and another thing that often happens that didn't happen here is that you see two women competing. Um, and here they're very supportive of each other. And that was good, too, because we don't see enough of that, especially now. I feel that portrayals of women are are very negative in all these kind of not exactly I don't want to say subtle, but because uh, they're not. But, you know, it's not like they go out and kill somebody, although they do that, too. In the, <laughs> but it it was good to see two women on the same page cooperating caring about something more than their careers which are never you know never mentioned it's never like oh we're going to get the pulitzer prize for this it's it's all about helping women with harvey weinstein and um, and each of the, we learn that not only are these women married they have husbands, they also have kids, and they have to deal with issues of motherhood and babies and being exhausted by being mothers. Yeah, yes, it was also realistic. And another thing I liked, which I think is also more realistic than people think, is that their husbands were very supportive of them. Their husbands were doing a little more of the domestic stuff than would have been the case before the, the wives got caught up in this story. Um, and it was okay. There's never the moment, which there so often is in a movie where the husband says, 
I, I have, I'm having an affair because you're never here. <laughs> you know? There was none of that. The heart of this movie is the victims, especially Ashley Judd, now older. We haven't seen her for a long time, and it's clear that she's an older woman now. She is agonizing about whether she should go public with the story of how she had to fend off Harvey's advances in the Peninsula Hotel years ago. And played by herself, she finally gives Jody Cantor the okay to use her name. And this is kind of the climactic moment in the drama of the film. And Jody Cantor, played by Zoe Kazan, breaks into tears because now it means the story can run. It'll be on page one of the New York Times and lots of other women will be empowered to come forward. Crying is something that Woodward and Bernstein did not do when they got the goods on Nixon from Deep Throat. But in this film, it seemed it was completely okay that Jody Cantor burst into tears. I thought, what did you think? I, I felt the same way. Um, I think, you know, crying gets such a bad rap, especially when women do it. When men do it now, it's, it proves that they're human and good. Uh, <laughs> women, are, women are not supposed to cry. It's kind of flipped around in that way. Um, but, you know, you cry for all kinds of reasons. You're happy, you're sad, or just the excessive feeling, relief. And that's what those tears were. And I thought it was both very realistic and did not take anything away from the characters and their hero and their heroism. So the system that protects and enables Weinstein is mostly male, but not exclusively. And that's another one of the key points the movie makes. There's Harvey's attorney, Lisa Bloom, the daughter of Gloria Alred, of course, the famous feminist attorney. And she is a she is fierce in attacking Harvey's victims. What do we know about the real Lisa Bloom? Well, Lisa Bloom was a feminist lawyer, and she, until she took this case, uh, and uh, where she played a, 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 a terrible role, um, was was accused of plotting to undermine the accusers by by giving out in an underhanded way, information about them and photos of them being happy with Harvey Weinstein after these, uh, the events that, the, that he was accused of. And Ronan Farrow, who is the New Yorker writer who was also covering the Harvey Weinstein story, he claimed that she would report information that she got from his investigation back to Weinstein. So that's not good. And how unusual is it for accused rapists to have feminist defenders? This is the most common thing in the world. If you're an accused rapist, I say this to all you people out there, <laughs> you, you want a woman lawyer because it defangs, it helps you because the jury is thinking, oh, well, she's on his side. So maybe he's not guilty. And we see that in the, the trial in Los Angeles, where I live, which was in October, the title of the movie in the book, She Said, of course, this comes from the conventional defense in rape trials. It's just a he said, she said situation. She said it was rape. He said she agreed to do it. And in fact, in the L.A. trial, when the wife of the governor, Gavin Newsom, Jen Newsom, testified uh, that she had been raped by Harvey Weinstein. His attorney said that she was, quote, just another bimbo who slept with Harvey Weinstein to get ahead in Hollywood, close quote. That's horrible. It is horrible. And it's shocking that a, a lawyer can say that. 
and not feel that this will redound against his client, that the client has such a vulgar and sexist lawyer. Now, I think it's still very, very hard to prove rape. Um, In the case of the governor's wife, Harvey was found not guilty. You're absolutely right. So, quote, just another bimbo. And this was in October, three months ago. Yeah, it worked. It's shocking. Of course, it's not like he's going to get out of jail anytime soon. So there's that. Yeah. In fact, let's just review where we stand with Harvey. He's now serving a 23-year sentence in New York uh, after being found guilty of criminal first-degree sexual assault and third-degree rape in Los Angeles trial. Uh, More recently, he was found guilty on three felony counts, counts, including forcible rape, forcible oral copulation, and forcible penetration by a foreign object. Uh, Monday of this week, the judge in L.A. announced Weinstein will be sentenced for those uh, convictions on February 23rd. That could be 18 more years, which are likely to be served, we are told, concurrently with his New York charges. Universal is now campaigning to get Zoe Kazan nominated for the Oscar for Best Actress and Carrie Mulligan for Best Supporting Actress. Carrie Mulligan has already been nominated for a Golden Globe. This is a revealing challenge to Hollywood. Will they honor the film about their own corrupt system of power that protected rapist studio executives who made films that won Oscars and appeared at the Oscar ceremonies? Well, Hollywood loves to think well of itself, doesn't it? It's always patting itself on the back for some good deed. So maybe they'll just offer everyone in this movie the Gene Herschel. (laughs) so um my husband and i saw this movie together and we both liked it a lot but um my husband felt that the emphasis placed on harvey weinstein as a perpetrator has made it seem as if he's the only one um everybody else is less culpable because harvey weinstein's sins were so egregious I don't agree with this, um, but it does remind me of this this uh, thing called the Har- the Marie Curie effect. That when Marie Curie won the Nobel Prize, actually she won it twice, but when she won it, people thought, "Oh, this is going to be great! Now women people will take women scientists seriously, and women will get more jobs in 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 science." And the opposite happened. What happened was a woman would go up for a job, and they'd say, "Well, she's good, but she's no Marie Curie." <laughs> So here it's like, well, okay, he's a rapist, but he's no Harvey Weinstein. (laughs) Of course, the movie makes the point of saying, if this could happen to powerful and world famous actresses, imagine what happens to ordinary working class women on the job. Yes, but you know, it wasn't that there being um, famous actresses didn't really protect them at all. Um, some of them never got another job. A lot of them were psychologically traumatized for decades. And the end of this movie does not say the Me Too movement arose and now everything is okay. It very clearly does not say everything is now okay. What it says is this is the story of how easy it is for predatory men in power to be kept there by a corrupt system of people who either look the other way or protect them. 
and how much work it took to break through the system, how hard it was for two New York Times reporters to do that, and that these people were, these two women were really good at their jobs. And it pays tribute to them and to the people who talked, and it does not say this solved the problem. Right. And that's very important because I think some people do think, oh, yeah, me too. That was 20. When was that? 2017, 2018. Well, we're over it now because now you can't do those things. No one would do those things now. But that's not true. Men still do those things and they still get away with it. The film is She Said. It's streaming now on Peacock, and it's available as pay-per-view on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, and Vudu. You can read Katha Pollitt's award-winning column at thenation.com. Katha, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music